preaching of God's Word is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, or 17, and particularly verses 3 and 4. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. This follows immediately after the warning of offenses or stumbling stones that would be cast into the path of God's people. And now we read, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Though it's beyond what we'll consider this morning, you'll notice the response elicited from God's people when they thus say, increase our faith. It's as if this testimony of such radical forgiveness is indeed such a challenge to the disciples, the very apostles of our Lord, realizing how great their need is for the increase of faith if ever this should be exercised among them. Well, it is an expression of God's people how good and how pleasant it is for them who dwell together in unity. The world clamors for unity, and yet a unity that's merely temporal and in many ways fabricated upon false premises. And so you'll see advertising programs and other such movements that are founded on the idea of unity. And indeed, we acknowledge that so far as unity is lawful, unity in this world is a good thing, whether among nations or states or businesses or other such things. And yet we also realize that many are the compromises the world seeks in pursuing a passing and temporal unity. But in God's kingdom, it is the very essence of that kingdom. For there is one faith. There is one God. There is one Savior. There is one baptism. There is one people of God. Unity makes up, as it were, the nature of God's kingdom in a number of ways. And so, how difficult a thing it is when instead of unity being preserved and cultivated, there is disunity, disharmony, and sins committed by brethren against brethren. This is what's before us in the text. Notice how carefully Christ calls us to think on this. He says in verse 3, "...take heed to yourselves." Now, this expression is used in a variety of places, and it's the Lord's way of saying, you need to give particular and sustained attention to this truth. It would be a good habit for us, of course, to approach all of God's Word with a prayer of uh, diligent attention, but especially when such expressions are given, as if Christ is saying, of all the other things that are important, There is a heightened need for you to zero in on this, to focus in on this, and to pay attention. But when we read what follows, it's almost unto us anticlimactic. You mean I need to pay attention to this? Forgiving others? And yet, as you know, Christ knows us far better than we know ourselves. Many of our own stumblings are because of our unwillingness as we read earlier from Matthew 18, to forgive one another from the heart. It's a theme that Christ touches on here. 
And it's likewise much in the epistles of the New Testament. Paul touching on it in almost all of his epistles. John emphasizing it. Peter touching on it as well. It's a theme that reminds us of the fact that we will be sinned against and of how it is we are to respond when sinned against. Notice the text itself. It speaks of thy brother. So the context, that there are other passages that would deal with what we're to do with those outside of uh, the fellowship of Christ. The context is focused on God's people, the covenant people of God, the church, those who are Christians. If thy brother sin against thee. Notice, this fact of calling one our brother is to indicate a close relationship. Now, all of us know something of having earthly brothers and sisters, perhaps with whom we're not as close. And yet, the Scriptures using this language is helping us see the intimacy that's to be enjoyed by those who are in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it indicates an intimate relationship. And yet, instead of this making it actually easier to forgive, it often makes it harder for us to forgive because we think to ourselves, well, they're supposed to know better. Well, they're united with me in Christ. And well, they know the truth of the Lord Jesus. And they're to be seeking my good, but instead of seeking my good, they've sought my harm. And so it is that we're to take heed because of the intimacy of this. Notice, if thy brother should trespass, not just generally, but trespass against thee. The word is what elsewhere is translated preeminently as sin. If your brother should go astray, but notice, in matters concerning you. So in other words, it's not just if he goes astray and sins, but when he goes astray and sins in matters concerning you. You, if thy brother should trespass against thee. This isn't meaning that in such circumstances there's not sin against God, but it's speaking rather that when that sin is against God in such matters as are materially concerning yourself. So you can think of the second table of the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt not kill, and so forth. These are matters, as it were, defining sins, the lack of love, the hatred, and so on, that are committed against others. And so we can put ourselves there. Perhaps we're in a position that deserves honor, whether as a father or as a husband or as a mother with children or as uh, one who is a superior in other such ways and one who is under us were to dishonor us. That would be a sin, yes, against God, but it is materially focused against you. This is Christ's point. If your brother sins, and when he sins, it is in matters regarding yourselves. What are you to do? He says, rebuke him. It is admonish or reprove him. Go to him, as elsewhere stated, and show him his fault. And notice, if he repent, if he turn from that way, what are you to do? Forgive him. If he stop there, we have sufficient to guide us in our relations with one another, but he emphasizes this point in the following verse. If he, that is if your brother, trespass against thee seven times in a day. This isn't meant for us to get out our tally list and start checking off. 
but it's emphasizing if this were repeatedly throughout the day, you are to be of such an orientation toward forgiveness that if it is, he turns again and says, I repent that you shall forgive him. Brethren, I doubt not, but that as I, you struggle with the thought of one first and foremost so near sinning against you, and secondly, so frequently sinning against you, that you still should maintain a posture of such loving generosity and illustrating God's grace as you should forgive him, as Christ says, from the heart. Now, before we go further, the connection between this passage and what proceeds seems to be, notice, Christ has introduced the idea of offenses that will come. And brothers, as it were, those who in God's covenant profess to be in God's covenant and yet lay snares to others. And we can get behind the notion that that's going to happen in some sort of abstracted fashion. It's going to happen to others. It's like thinking of a war, for instance, and saying, well, we know in any given war somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to be injured. Something's going to happen. And we can sort of understand that. And yet, when the injury happens to us, it takes on new significance. And so Christ is now saying, listen, you've heard me address this notion of offenses that will come and trip up certain ones. Well, when those offenses come against you, when the sins that I've spoken against here are now focused on you. What are you to do? Are you to be embittered and say, how dare you? And what are you thinking? Well, you're to go and show them their fault. But you're to watch your soul so carefully that instead of even the root of bitterness, which Paul warns us against, there should be the fruit of love. Your purpose being reconciliation and the regaining of unity Instead of the shaming of the one who has sinned, your purpose is, as it were, to bring them to repentance, which has, of course, a shame but toward God, and the remission of such hindrances as have been brought forth. So what should be our response? Well, Christ says we're to forgive them. We're to be ready to forgive them. And so we see what is so clearly testified throughout the Scriptures that Christians are to forgive those that sin against them. Now, this is easy to assert. It's easy to get behind in theory. But so soon as you're impacted by the sins of another, it's far more difficult than in theory it seems. Because the temptation when one sinned is to return likeness for likeness. It is to push back as we have been pushed back. It is to do so whether directly against the one who sinned, or it is to do so indirectly by spreading that sin to others. It's instructive, of course, that when Christ addresses this in Matthew 18, that He says, if your brother sin against you, He says, go to your brother. Go to him. Don't go and tell it to other people. Don't spread the scandal. Don't multiply instances of others knowing it. You take it up and go to that one directly. And so we can see something of the difficulty, and yet, as we'll see, the beauty of such forgiving one of another. 
We'll consider then three things as we hope to open this before us by the Lord's help. Firstly, considering what it is to be injured or sinned against by our brother. Secondly, what it is to address our brother. And thirdly, how it is we forgive our brother. So, injured, addressing, and forgiving our brother. Well, firstly then, as to being injured by or being sinned against by our brother, notice our brother's act as it's considered. It's called here a trespass, which word is usually uh, translated as sin. In other words, what is being considered is an act of sin as determined by God's law. This is important because what's being emphasized in such a word and used again and again is that what is considered as the act is a clear violation of God's law. It's not preferences. It's not marginal issues. It's not things that we would rather have a different way but aren't going the way we want. It's not as if we're to say, well, you know, I wanted to go here to eat, but they forced me to go there to eat, so I'm going to harbor these things, and I'm going to have to go to them and say, why did you do these things? You know, for those things, oh, what immaturity so riddles the church of Christ. But what Christ is considering is when there is a legitimate sin as defined by God's law. When God's law says, you shall do this for your brother, And instead of doing that, the opposite is done. That's what is before us. So you can think in terms of the second table of the law. So, thou shalt not kill. But it's not just murder, but rather those things, perhaps physically, that may injure us. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But it's not only, of course, the outward act of adultery, but the lustful desires and such things that would pursue the same. Thou shalt not steal. But again, it's not only the swiping from someone, what is their possession, but the pursuit of the same. And so it's the sin in its fullest, and yet the sin in all of its means to the fulfilling of it. And so before us, as Christ is stating, is a sin committed. And so this is something that's important to emphasize. We all have our personal desires and interests and other such things. It might be as simple as uh, certain times we meet or the temperature of a room and all of these things and someone has it differently. Those aren't sins against us. Those are things which call perhaps at the most for a loving forbearance. But there's no need for us to go to a brother who has a different opinion on those things and say, listen, we need to get this fixed. Because legitimately, there's nothing to fix. But when it is, for instance, think of Joseph, his brothers sell him into slavery. That's sin. When it is that one steals a possession from another, that's sin. When someone dishonors the good name of another, that's sin. In other words, a brother's act is sin, but notice also, the sin has a focus. So our brother's act is sin, but secondly, our brother's focus of his sin has its target upon you. And this is where all of a sudden we can become more provoked. It's something, isn't it, when we see sin in our brethren, and yet somehow 
we're more able to overlook those sins, but when it is that the sin targets us, now we feel, as it were, provoked and ready to go to war. But Christ directs us in a different way. So our brother's focus in his act of sin is against you. It's a wrong done to you. It's something that transgresses God and yet which finds its transgression in matters concerning you. Now, this doesn't have to be something physical. It can be something verbal. So there is honor to be given to those who have positions of authority. You think of children, for instance. They dishonor their mother and father, not only in not doing things toward them, but in not saying things toward them. And then there is a sin when it is instead of saying things that they ought to say, they say things they ought not to say about their parents. Now what's true about that relationship of one under and one over is true in a marriage, it's true in a church setting, it's true in a business, it's true as far as the Lord is concerned in all relationships where there are distinctions of one above and one beneath. Brethren, you know what it is, perhaps. You know what a difficulty it is. when Someone misrepresents you unto others. Here you're striving to do something perhaps that's right and good in God's sight. And for whatever reason, someone else spreads a different version and misrepresents the same. And so your honor is, as it were, brought low unto dishonor in the esteem of others. That is a sin certainly against God, but which finds its focus in you. But it doesn't just go that way from those who are under to those who are over. Those who have authority can misuse their authority. Not every misuse warrants the term abuse, but there are even forms of abuse that can be given. A husband has the responsibility and calling to love his wife so that he loves her as Christ loved the church. Now, brethren, that's a lofty calling. That means there is a particular and a peculiar love for the husband that, as it were, exceeds the love that he has for others in this world. Such focus and care and nurturing and service, even as Christ gave to the church. And wives who have experienced even the smallest neglect in those things will know something of the pain and shame that is felt when her husband does not love her as Christ loved the church. What is the wife to do? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But notice that's what's being gotten at here. Children, you're not the only ones who can sin against one. Your parents can sin against you in not disciplining you in the way that you should be warned and instructed and not caring for you and instructing you in the way of truth and not providing for you the means that are needed, perhaps in a careless and hard and cruel posture toward you. The point is this. Each of us in our various circumstances knows something of what it is for someone, yes, to sin against God, but to find that way of sinning to be focused, as it were, against us. That's what is before us. This is why we call it being injured 
by our brother. It may not be physical injury, of course. It may be emotional or spiritual injury, but the fact is one is sinning against us. Now, secondly, we consider what it is to address our brother who has so sinned. Notice, firstly, that in addressing our brother, we address him or her as a brother. See in Christ's word, if thy brother trespass against thee. It doesn't say you just throw off all, as it were, uh, uh, restraint and say, well, you must not be a brother because you've done this to me. But there is, even in the way that Christ speaks, a posture of soul that is loving and which is demanded if ever there's to be the issuing of forgiveness and the approaching of that one who has sinned against us. It is a judgment of charity, perhaps, and yet it is a sincere judgment. So he remains, thy brother. Yes, the fact of his relationship increases the sin, but the fact of that aggravation does not remove what should be our assessment that this one who has so sinned is to be counted still as a brother. It's astounding to us how quickly some are willing to say, well, that one couldn't be a brother because they've sinned against me. Well, brethren, here Christ is saying we are to esteem them still as brethren. Yes, there comes a point when we are to treat them no longer as a brother, as Christ says. They are to be after the course of discipline, lawfully administered, no longer esteemed as brethren, but rather so to be treated, as he says in Matthew 18, as publicans and as Gentiles. But here we approach the one as a brother. And in doing so, it orients our soul in a way of love. So in other words, though they've done this against me, even from the very beginning point of my approaching them, I'm approaching them in a different spirit than they approached me. It has been something of a recurring theme throughout many generations that there's a way of speaking even in our own day that you don't get mad, you get even. Right? This is seen in the world as something of what is praiseworthy. Well, you don't need to get consumed by the anger, but rather just get even. But Christ doesn't have that before us. Christ says when they've done this, you approach them in a different way. Think of how he says it in an extreme way. If one strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other cheek. You see, brethren, one thing that we ought to see here is if ever we're to forgive one as Christ is calling us, there is the absolute need of God's grace operating in our souls. There's no way of fulfilling this command unless God's grace is saturating all that we are. Because to do what Christ is saying requires the provision of supernatural grace. There's nothing you can muster in your own strength to pursue, pursue this. We are to pursue it in the strength of the Lord. But notice then our, repro- our, our approach in addressing our brother. There's a few things that we're to glean from the text. We're to approach him first ensuring that what we're approaching them over is sin. If thy brother trespass 
against thee. And so one thing we ought to do when we find our own souls, as it were, hurt, is to ask the question, well, am I hurt over something that really is a sin? Or am I hurt for some other reason? I had my hopes set on this, they did that. They didn't do exactly what I wanted or whatever else. Can I actually point to the Scriptures and say, this act done against me is defined by God's law as sin? Because if it's not, there may be need of discussing and so on and clarifying and getting on the same page about things perhaps. But this text doesn't apply to those things. We don't make something out of nothing. But if it does, as it were, show itself to be defined by God as sin, notice how the text says you are to rebuke Him. Now that is sufficient in and of itself. It's the idea of talking with the one who's done it. Now we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 18 that there's even greater specificity in the way that Christ speaks there. Matthew 18 and verse 15. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault, and notice, between thee and him alone. There's a book that ought to be read by Christians today by James Durham, among other books of his, concerning scandal. And it speaks of how a scandal can be multiplied by violating this principle. So someone sins against me, if I go to someone else and say, do you know what so-and-so did? I'm actually guilty of increasing the scandal. And brethren, this is part of the way our world operates. Instead of going to the one who sinned, we find it far easier to go unto others, complain and murmur, and spread the issue by the way which can do no good, not to our own souls, not to the one who sinned against us, and not to the testimony of Christ. When there is sin against us, Christ calls us to go to the one who has sinned against us and notice alone. Not for spreading it and saying, you know, here are the things, but rather going to that one and saying, here, I've thought about this, I've prayed about it. In my best assessment, it seems that what you did here is in violation of God's law and it's against me. That's what Christ is calling us to do. We're approaching Him in private. We're admonishing Him, here called rebuking Him, that is calling His attention to God's Word. And so notice, it's less about calling that person's attention to our injury, and it's more about calling His attention to God's Word. We're rebuking Him in light of God's Word. This is something further that the world misses. The world, when sins are against, loves to magnify the personal angst, sorrow, and hurt that has been felt. This is the victim mentality of our age. This is nothing in the Scripture about cultivating a victimized mindset. It's rather an orientation of our soul to the good of the one who sinned against us for the glory of God. We don't come and say, well you know, what you did to me has really left me in the dumps and I'm really upset and disappointed and frustrated and you've made me so angry and I can't believe you did this to me and so on and so forth. That's the way the world deals with these things. That is to be nowhere found in the Scriptures 
as the way we as Christians deal with it. We come in the light of God's Word for the good of the one who sinned, for the glory of God who stands above, and we seek to heal the damage, the division. Approaching the one in private, admonishing him, and you can see woven throughout the purpose of our approach is to seek reconciliation. Right? The purpose is to, if he repent, forgive him. We don't then go to our brothers and sisters and say, yeah, I'd have this really difficult talk. You know, so-and-so did this to me and thankfully they saw their fault and they forgave or, or repented and I forgave them, which is really a backhanded way of just patting ourselves on the back, puffing ourselves up in pride. Brethren, if it passes this test, no one else in the world should know about it because it's been dealt with. It's over and done. It's figured out. It's resolved. And the Lord is satisfied. You see, our approach in addressing our brother is for that person's good and the praise of God. The world gets it backwards. They approach in order to be vindicated and, as it were, rewarded. We approach in order to heal a division and to bring praise unto our God. Now, notice thirdly, this leads us to the forgiving of our brother. Christ says, if he repent, that is, if his response is that he confesses and gives some evidence of breaking course from his approach, so it's not a sarcastic, well, yeah, okay, I sinned. You know, what do you want me to do? But there is, of the judgment of charity, a measure of sincerity. You know, brother, what I did was wrong. And I ask you to forgive me. And so it's not the sarcastic way, and it's not the formulaic way of the world. You know, some scandal breaks out, and what is the very uh, cultured response as it's been curated by a team of uh, professionals? It's, you know, something I've said has been understood by others to bring hurt to them. I'm sorry that they're feeling hurt and I'm going to be a better person, and I'm sorry that I've disappointed those who put their trust in me, and I resolve to go on and so forth. That's not repenting. That's covering up one's failure and trying to skirt by on the goodwill of others. Rather, there has to be some acknowledgement by the person that there was sin. There's no repentance before God unless there's a confession of sin. And so at the very least... There must be a confession of sin. That's what Matthew 18 says. If he confesses sin, right? That's what the Scriptures tell us ourselves. When we acknowledge our sins, when we confess our sins. And so at the very least, this response indicates there must be the acknowledging of sin as defined by God. So someone comes to us, perhaps unbeknownst to us, we've been doing something that has been truly defined as sin or even known to us. Someone comes to us and calls us out, and by God's great grace, we're brought to submit, and we say, Brother, certainly I'm sorry for the pain that this has caused you, and that shames me, but I, more than that, confess that I've sinned against you in sinning against God in this way. When there's something of that, and we don't stand with a critical eye saying, well, This was said, that wasn't said. 
His face looked this way, but you know they were looking that way. The gesture was over here, and that gesture, and so on. We're going through all the whole thing. No, remember, we're approaching in a spirit of charity, and in that spirit of charity, we're more given to accept than we are to criticize and filter and say, well, I don't know, I didn't tick all the boxes I was hoping for. And so when we see the evidence of a sincere confession, our response then is, as Christ says, to forgive him. It's a beautiful word that is frequently used as it is here, forgive. It means to send away. Think of that for a moment. If your body's ever been ravaged by an illness, what would it mean to your body if that illness were sent away? Right? Your body would know no longer the effects of that illness. If your hunger were sent away, you would no longer feel the effects of your hunger. If sin is sent away, there's no longer that bitterness and that frustration and that difficulty there and that readiness to jump on every single thing that takes place. And so Christ is saying, when that confession is made, when there's evidence of the same, send away the sin, forgive it. It's no longer to be found. Think of it this way, children. If you have a ball in your hand and you're to throw the ball, you're to throw it by pulling back and going forward and doing what? Letting the ball go. If you hold on to it, you're liable actually to injure yourself, especially when you put all the force into throwing and at the last moment hold back. You're refraining from releasing and throwing away the ball. Many times we're tempted to say we forgive, but instead of releasing, as it were, we tuck it away in our pocket, waiting for the next moment to pull out and say, yeah, but, remember this? Yeah, but, remember that? You see, the forgiveness is to be a real forgiveness. It's to be, by God's grace, such that it's flung from us. And as it were, it's no longer a matter between us. It doesn't mean that we forget it. That's humanly impossible. You can't forget, especially when there are certain things done to us. But what it does mean is that no longer is the ground of division between us and that we're willing in charity to carry on in a degree of fellowship with that one who sinned against us. To do this, it is the need that we have God's grace. Now, it's also, perhaps we can say, how is it that this response can be realized? Well, Paul gives us help in the book of Ephesians. Notice Ephesians in chapter 4. Here he is addressing the issue of forgiveness. And notice how he wades into this topic in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Children, here's what he's getting at. If, for whatever reason, dishes from a previous meal have not been cleaned, and there's food that's on the plate, and a new meal's ready to eat, what do you have to do first? You have to clean the plate. And so, here Paul is saying, clean out all of these things. Get rid 
of the bitterness, the anger, the malice. Because if that's not swiped away, if that's not cleaned, you'll never be able to do what's next. Notice, be kind one to another, tender-hearted. There's the posture of our soul. And now we might think, well, yeah, I can do that when they're nice to me. When they don't sin against me, when they don't speak wrong, when they give me the honor I'm due, when they do this for me and do that for me and they avoid doing those things against me, as Paul says, this is what's needed, which is then what leads to the forgiving one another, even as Christ, as God for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. See the point? In order to forgive, there is a spiritual reality of grace that is required in the soul before that act takes place. You want to make a connection that's searching. When we're hesitant to forgive, when we're more reminded of all of the faults of another, that's a testimony against us as much as it is against them. It's a testimony against us that we are those who instead of being free of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and so on, and being full of kind-heartedness and tender-heartedness, we're full of bitterness and all these, other, these things. Someone says, well, wait, does that mean you're saying that it's the other person's fault? By no means. The reality is, both the pot and the kettle can be black. It doesn't make any sense for us to say, well, if they didn't sin... I wouldn't cultivate bitterness. The fact is, Christ is saying, it may be and will be the fact of My people that others will sin, and yet you're still to be free of bitterness. You're still to be free of uh, malice. You're to be full of kindness and tenderheartedness. But brethren, isn't it the case that when someone has any sort of history of having sinned against us, whether one time or many times, We sort of have our defenses up and we're looking for the faults of the other. And maybe in private, with others and our family or others, we're ready to spread the sins about them to others. Here, if we're to respond by forgiving, Paul reminds us it is that we have need of grace within before we cultivate and express the forgiveness to others. What might be a test of whether we have forgiven our brother. Well, we can find it in no less place than the book of Leviticus. It's astounding to us that some think the book of Leviticus unhelpful or one that we just sort of get through. It's actually full of tremendous insight to practical matters quite relevant to us today. Notice in Leviticus chapter 19, in verse 18, Verse 17, quite well fits. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Brethren, take inventory for a moment and ask yourself this. Is there a brother or sister in this congregation, let's start there, in this congregation, with whom you have an inward grudge. Is there anyone in this congregation 
that as you sort of go through the role, as it were, you think about where everyone sits, and you're going through your mind with that, that in your own soul, you come to their face, you come to their name, and in your heart, there is that bitterness that you sense. Let me be clear. It may be that they've sinned against you. But let's talk for a moment about this. That bitterness that is protected and permitted is your sin. It's not their sin. It's yours. And if ever you're going to be able to address the other well, as Christ would, that bitterness in you must be dealt with before the Lord. There's no way that you're ever going to be able to address whatever the sin is that he or she has done to you without first ridding your soul of your sin against God. Your bitterness actually precludes the ability to go forth to your brother as you should and rebuke, admonish, and so on to seek forgiveness. Because what the bitterness permitted and perhaps cultivated does is it changes the terms of the game to an end of, I'm going to be right. I'm going to be vindicated. I'll get my pound of flesh from that one. It may direct different people different ways. The bitterness that resides in our heart may direct us away from our brother or sister and allow us uh, to fester on it and thus deprive the body of Christ from greater unity. It may make us so caustically abrasive to our brother or sister that we're ever, as it were, stiff-arming them spiritually and pushing them back, whether directly or indirectly. But let's be clear. The sin, whatever it is that they've committed, needs to be addressed, but can only be addressed by you first addressing the permitted sin in your own soul of bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, and hard-heartedness. There are marriages, as any pastor well knows, that would be instantly fixed. Instantly. If the wife or husband or both would address their own bitterness against the other. The wife's always point out the husband's faults. The husband's always point out the wife's faults. And it goes back and forth. And the thought is, well, I'm not going to change. I'm just going to throw up smoke until that one changes. And when he gets his life right, then I'll be kind and peaceful. When she gets her terms right, then I'll be helpful and serviceable. Brethren, that's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Satan. That's the wickedness and wretchedness of selfishness that permeates us at times. The kingdom of God says, I've sinned. I, before God, am going to deal with that. And then in lowliness, I'll approach my spouse, my brother or sister, whatever it is, to the end that I might seek the Lord. Now notice our response is to be radically ready. Do you see the term that Christ says there in Luke in chapter 17? It's enough for us, of course, to have seen what He's already mentioned. But He says further, that when it is, or if it is, as He says, thy brother trespass against thee seven times in a day. 
We have no doubt why the apostles immediately following this are recorded to say, Lord, increase our faith. Seven times in a day? Seven times in a day, Christ says. And if He turn again to thee, saying, I repent. And isn't it true that we are ready to say, well, if they're doing it seven times, are they really repenting? But three times. Aren't we ready to say, well, that, that's over. You know, I'm not going to do anything until you get your life straight. And yet Christ is challenging us. No, He's demanding us that we would be of such readiness that if this took place seven times in the same day, such would be the reality of His grace in our lives that we would have a readiness to say, absolutely, brother, I forgive you. Do you not see how absolutely necessary the Lord's grace is? Well, it's not in this passage, but it is in Matthew 18. Do you remember when Christ testifies of the one who had a debt he could not pay back in a lifetime is freely forgiven? And this was to motivate his willingness to forgive others who have sinned against him. Well, we can borrow from that and see, as it were, the key to this readiness is knowing God through Christ Jesus. It's no wonder to us that the world can't forgive in this way. It's no wonder to us that the world struggles and is always seeking out like the personal vindication and gain. But it ought to astound you and me that we struggle with this when we profess, as we sing, think of this expression, I acknowledged my sin before you, and of my sin thou freely didst forgive the iniquity. We simply confess our sins to God. And God doesn't say, well listen, I'm going through my book, and yesterday you did the same thing. And actually this morning you did that, and just two minutes ago you did that, so let's get something straight. I'm not going to forgive you. Get your course right, and then I'll consider forgiving you. Brother, think for a moment. When we hesitate to forgive others, what testimony that gives to the world of how God forgives us. This is the point that Christ gives in Matthew 18. You've been forgiven such a debt that in no way could you ever repay. And though your brother sins against you and it injures you and it hurts you and so on, what is to motivate and enable you to forgive them is the remembrance of you have been forgiven by God. So, as we close, there are difficulties to note. Sins against us can be and are very painful. Sometimes they're against us personally. Sometimes they're against our children. Sometimes they're against our spouse. And in some ways, when they're against us in our families, or when they're against us in our church, someone outside of the church commits a sin against us and a member in the church, it actually hurts more. And we feel, as it were, more embittered and more frustrated. The pain is real. But brethren, the difficulty is overcome by the remembrance of the Lord's forgiving us. The Lord's grace that far outweighs any mercy or compassion 
that we may give. Someone may raise the question, well, what about, you know, are you saying that, is God saying, more importantly, that when we forgive, we're just to be, you know, imprudent and careless and so on? What if they've done something criminal to us? No, there's a way of going about justice and yet without the personal invective, as it were, against the person seeking God's glory. There's a way to be free from bitterness while still seeking justice to prevail. That though there may be the personal forgiveness, a crime that's been committed may and ought to be prosecuted for the good of society or for the glory and for the glory of God. So for instance, as unthinkable as the situation can be, there are Christians, brethren, think of this, there are Christians who are on record as having experienced this. A child is murdered. And the parent, who's a Christian, actually has, by God's grace, the ability to speak with the murderer, and the murderer, brought to some form of confession, is forgiven by the parent. Well, we aren't saying, and God's Word isn't saying, at that point they ought to be released from their civil crime. There is still the need, out of the civil crime, to be prosecuted and indeed punished. But the parent who has suffered the wrong of their child being untaken or taken unlawfully is personally, as it were, no longer embittered against that one. What is able to make that happen? It's the knowledge that our sins against God are far more wicked than that person's murdering of our child. You see, the point is, the reason that we struggle with forgiving others is because we haven't fully come to terms with what our sin is against God and what it means for Him to forgive us. When we start with what He's done for us, it actually clears the way for our readiness to forgive one another. So to help us, we are to remember our elder brother who has come to forgive and has forgiven and as we do, we trust Him that God will not suffer unrighteousness to be unpunished, but that God, as we are told, we're to leave room for the vengeance of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's an act of faith. God, if there is injustice here that needs to be answered, I trust You to bring it to pass. But as for me, my hands will be from personal pursuit of this matter. So brethren, if we are to forgive, two things are needed. Trust in God who does all things well. Do you not see it in Joseph? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And in that trust, a remembrance of God's forgiving us. Such crimes against Him that merited eternal wrath, and yet by His grace, remitted by the blood of Christ, that we stand fully and freely forgiven. When we start there in what we have by grace, we start where we're able to forgive others freely because we have been freely forgiven. May you, would you stand with me as we close in prayer?